0: No stick. (laughs) Well, um, welcome. Uh, We've been over the last, I think, three or four weeks uh, looking as a church at um, how God was at work out there. Uh, We've been having an outward look at um, missions and our role and responsibility uh, in that work of God. But over the next few weeks, probably four weeks or something like that, we're now going to have a bit of an inward look. We're going to have a look at God's work within the local church, within our church. Uh, And isn't it good that God has um, a heart for the whole world but he also has a heart for this congregation and he also has a heart for you as individuals in Revelation chapter 3 and 4 no chapter 2 and 3 in fact um, uh, it describes Christ as walking amongst the churches seven churches uh, in, um, in that book of Revelation And he's present in their midst and he's looking and he's assessing and some had some areas that needed quite a bit of attention and there were one or two that that had their hearts right with God. And just as Christ was walking amongst the churches back then in the book of Revelation, He's present in this congregation. And he's looking. (laughs) And he's assessing. And he's working. And he's doing something for not only for the good of us as a congregation, but he's doing something for the good of each of us as an individual. For those of you who have not encountered Jesus in the gospel, that may seem a little bit strange. But for those who have, who have come out of a place of having no purpose and hopelessness and have met Christ and seen something of the work that he's done on the cross in taking their sins and bringing about forgiveness, we've come to experience a purpose and a hope, an eternal hope. So God is concerned about the church, he's concerned about this church at Corinth and we're going to learn some things about what's good and what's not so good in the operation of a church and God willing it will influence us, not just at the mind level but at the heart level, to be more like Jesus to align ourselves with his purpose which is ultimately to transform each of us into the image of Christ to restore the image that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And he wants to do that. He wants to do that with us as a congregation and individually. Now Corinth, you've all heard of Corinth? (laughs) Uh, You may have heard that it wasn't a particularly godly place, not the sort of place that you would think to plant a church but God had called Paul to that city specifically and he had uh, opened the door to people's hearts in this city that was prosperous um, full of successful people. People that had the wealth to pursue pleasures and immorality and their greed and their covetousness. It was a prosperous, successful, but corrupt place. Full of greed, full of immorality. This was the city. And... In that place, in that place, God had planted this church. We call it the church at Corinth. And this epistle was written by Paul after he had left to that church. So what do we see happening in the church? The city was corrupt, (laughs) but there's something about people... Uh, coming to Christ in this body that we call the church this body is still full of sinners (laughs) and so much of the inclination that was in the hearts of these people who were ungodly people much of the inclination, the natural inclination was still there See, Paul wrote elsewhere in this way. He said, "I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing." That's a that's a startling revelation, really. Now, when I first became a Christian, I uh, I encountered Jesus, <laughs> and he started to convict me about it, some things and make some changes in my life. And I guess I started to think that, well, okay as a Christian, I won't be subject to the tugs and the pulls and the temptations that are around us. And it was quite a revelation to realise I'm really no different than those around me. See, that's why Paul said, in me, that is in my flesh there dwells no good thing. Now we know there there is a, a big difference when someone comes to Christ, they're born into a new family, they're given a new life, but particularly God's Spirit comes to dwell in them. And that's the distinction. But because of their flesh, because of the temptations, because of the influence of this city, which is probably not a lot different than this place where we live. All sorts of things had been going on in the church that were problematic. There were divisions, there were arguments. Christians were taking other Christians to law courts. They had a, what would you call it? Um, What do you call it when you have a football thing? Yeah, you know, where different people try and guess the winning teams. Well, (laughs) a competition. They even had a competition about it was the best preacher. You know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. These things ought not to be, but we can be the same. Right at the beginning of the letter, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. There were quarrelling, there were sectarianisms. There was chaos in the conduct of the services and communion. And then we come to chapter 12. And chapter 12 is part of 12, 13 and 14. So we're only going to look at the start but it's important to recognise that it is just a start, so you need to keep coming. (laughs) You would think that the very thing that God had given here in the gifts, and we'll look at this a little bit more closely, the very thing that God had given for the good and the benefit and the unity of the church, that very thing became a cause for division and fighting and contention. After all, my gift is better than your gift. I'm more important than you are. We would never say that, would we? (laughs) But we would think it. We would think it. That's the irony of this chapter and this passage. (laughs) Isn't it amazing that this very thing that God wanted for good, we are good at perverting (laughs) that. Isn't it good that God can turn it back? (laughs) We turn the good into evil. But God takes the evil and he uses it for his good. The very thing often that we mean for evil, God uses for good. He is so gracious. He is so long-suffering. He is so tolerant with us. And so we focus, we'll try not to do that too much, but we focus on the gifts rather than the giver. We focus on ourselves rather than the other. So this passage, with love in the middle, chapter 13, we'll get to that, you could think that this is a rebuke to the church. And it should be, in one sense, a rebuke to us. Now, I'm not suggesting that our behaviour was the same as that of Corinth. Of course, when Christ moves amongst the churches, his assessment may be different, I don't know. But he does look at our hearts. And he's looking at our hearts this morning. So we're going to come to verse 1 to 3 first. Just before I do that, let, let's, let's remind ourselves of what God's intention is for the church, for the body, for us. In John 17, Christ prayed his priestly It was just on the eve of the cross. It was just before Gethsemane. What was he going to pray for? What was he going to ask his heavenly father for? What would you pray for? (laughs) Knowing you were going to die the following day. Now there were a number of things that were on his heart, but in particular... We read this in this high priestly prayer of Christ in verses 22 and 26 of John 17. He says that they, (laughs) the believers, may be one even as we, that is the Father and the Son, are one. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Why would Christ pray that? He knows. (laughs) He knows that even with all the blessings and grace that he's given us as his people, we will be inclined to look not upwards and outwards, we'll be inclined to look inwards. And that's the antithesis of love. Looking inward. And so he prayed that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I and this is God's purpose for us. Well, there are probably different facets to that purpose, but ultimately that's what he wants to do. You think, why are we talking about all of this? This is supposed to be about gifts. (laughs) Well, we want to get this in the right context we want to understand that he is concerned not about the outward, but about the inward. So we read in verse 1 of chapter 12, concerning spiritual gifts, the word gifts isn't there actually in that word, it's concerning spiritual, (laughs) it could be spiritual people, spiritual things, Spiritual gifts, but he does go on to talk about gifts later on. But he says, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans or heathens or ungodly, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say there's a variety of gifts. The first thing that we notice here, that he doesn't want us to be uninformed. He says, concerning these things, concerning the spiritual realm, and specifically later the gifts, he doesn't want us to be uninformed. Now, th- quite possibly, uh, this was in response to questions that the Corinthians had. Earlier on in, in chapter 7, he talks about concerning the matters about which you wrote. In chapter 8, concerning food offered to idols. Now, concerning the spiritual things, I want you to understand, I want you to, to know. I don't want you to be uninformed. Now, God does want our hearts. He wants our lives. But it does have to start in the mind, in the understanding. When I first, well, when I first, the only time I came to Christ, (laughs) and I've shared this before, but I'll do it again, I learned a verse in 1 John 5, 11, and 12, when it says, this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He that has a Son has life. He that does not have the Son has not life. It says, this is the record I want you to know. I write these things that you might know that you have eternal life. God wants us to know the truth. He wants us to be informed here in this passage because by and large there was much misinformation or do we call it disinformation today or one of those? There was much misinformation going on in the body and there was certainly misinformation related to the gifts and the abilities and the roles that individuals had in the body. You could probably summarise it as, it was a mess. (laughs) It was. So it does matter, Paul wants us to be informed. Back when he was writing the epistle to the Romans, in Romans 12, he, he says, not to be conformed to the world, but be ye transformed, how does he start? By the renewing of your Mind, not removing of your mind, (laughs) by the renewing of your mind, so that you might prove and know what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How do we come to know and live according to the will of God? We need to be informed, (laughs) we need to understand the truth of the matter. The apostle wanted us wanted the church at Corinth to understand the truth. So what was it that he wanted us to be informed about? Well, he begins here and starts to talk about, I want you to understand. Well, first of all, you used to be led astray. You've now come into his family. And I want you to understand... That no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What's he saying? He's saying that the Christian life is a spiritual life. It's an inward life. In the flesh, in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. It's only God is the author of all the good. See, you can't, with the Spirit of God reigning in your life, when you've consecrated, like we sang, consecrated my life to him, then you can't say Jesus is accursed. We would never say that verbally. But, you know, we can minimise Jesus. And in the flesh we do. We minimise him when we ignore him, when we disobey him. But in the Spirit of God, no one can ever say Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. He's well, not just talking about the parroting the words. Because back in the Gospel, he, he said there are many of you that will say, Lord, Lord. <laughs> And I'll say, I never knew you. He's not talking about parroting the words. He's saying no one, no one can authentically, maybe that's the word, no one can genuinely, no one can honestly, no one from the heart can call him Lord and Master except by the Holy Spirit. He's saying there's a spiritual element to this. It's God who is at work. Our propensity is to look on the outward things. So the Corinthians' propensity was to look at the gifts, and they were comparing the gifts, and they were defining the gifts, and they were exercising them well the way they thought, etc. But God wasn't looking at the gifts. As much as the inward. When Samuel was to choose, anoint the new king, it was to be David, you recall the story, they, uh, God had him march all the sons of Jesse before him to select who was going to be the king. And the first one comes up and Samuel thinks, wow. This is the man. He's tall, he's strong, he's handsome. Well, I don't know if he was handsome. I think he probably was handsome. But God says he's rejected him. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. The outward things are perishing. We know that as we age. (laughs) That's the reality. We are to look not at the things that are seen, the outward things, but we are to look at the things that are not seen. You could say, we... Not at a stretch. We are not to focus on the outward gifts. We are to focus on the inward work. That's why the love is so important in in chapter 13. (laughs) See, love is an inward thing. A lot of the exercise of the gifts was an outward thing. But that's our inclination, isn't it? That's our inclination. So what does he want us to be informed about? He wants us to be informed about the reality of God at work. It's his spirit at work. It's his spirit that brings about all the good and the grace and the blessing in the life of us as individuals and it's his spirit that will bring about all that good and blessing in the church. What else did he want us to be informed about? Verses 4 to 6 we read, now there are a varieties of gifts, same spirit. There are varieties of service, same Lord. There are varieties of activities but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. The other thing he wants us to know, to understand, to be informed about, is that we are not all the same. Have you noticed that? (laughs) Of course, our sinful inclination means that brings about division. But God's intention was not to make us all the same, that we might experience unity. His intention was that there would be differences. See, you are unique, just like everybody else. We're all unique before God. And God is not trying to wipe that away. He's not trying to produce like a sausage machine, you know, one after the other, the after, after the other. We're not... This is one of the reasons um, uh, the Scripture warns us against comparing ourselves one with another. Just like uh, John, no Peter, when he questioned Jesus about John, is this, what about this man? <laughs> Jesus said, "Don't worry about him. I'm able to look after him." So there is a variety of gifts. They're gifts. Charisma is the word that's used. It means something that's given. There's a variety of services, if you like, areas of application of those gifts. We all have a part to play. We'll see this later on when, uh, in the next section uh, next week. There's a variety of activities, that outworking of gifts. We don't all do the same things, but we do all work in some area or another. So we're different, we're diverse. Variety is a spice of life, I've heard. (laughs) The next thing we see, and look, this is through this whole passage. It's probably related to what I said before about the spiritual focus. But we see that it's in verse 6, it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. You notice when we read through this, the focus isn't on the gifts. Now, I know he talks about the gifts, and I'm not trying to minimize them, but I am. (laughs) See, that's what was in the Corinthians' minds, all these things that they were doing. But what was on God's mind? What was on the apostles' mind? It was a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but the same God. And he keeps on going. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The Spirit. He goes on to say, verse 8, for to one is given through the Spirit. Verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. Do you get it? (laughs) What's he talking about? He's saying the focus should be on the giver, not on the gifts. He's not saying that there isn't a place for the gifts and that the gifts don't matter. But they don't matter if that's the focus because making that the focus brings about division and contention and fighting. When I used to work for IBM, somebody once said that stands for I've been moved, (laughs) but I did move a lot, so there was quite a bit of travel. And I would go away, and sometimes I would get a gift when I came back home. I'd bring a gift, the children, even my wife. What do you think the children were excited about? (laughs) Yeah, the gifts. (laughs) What was my wife excited about? Me. Well, I hope she was. See, this is the perspective. You know, when we're immature, we we get excited about all the things we can get. As we mature, we become excited about the person, about the Spirit of God. The other thing we learn, and he wants us to be informed about, is not only is he the Spirit, that is at the centre, the Lord and God, he's the one who empowers and who allocates, apportions. So in verse uh, 6 it says, it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone, those gifts. In verse 7, it's a manifestation of the spirit. And in verse 18... I think, no, 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 11. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit. He empowers them and he apportions them to each one. So we don't select. Our role is to get to know the giver. And the giver enables us. He wants us to exercise that which he gives us and enables us with, and that's the other thing that we learn from here. This is the other thing he wants us to be informed about, that the focus is on the giver, but the purpose is not on you possessing the gift. The purpose is not on you having that ability, whatever it might be. The purpose is for the common good, in verse 7. Later on in verse 25 it says that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. Later in chapter 14 we'll see we're to strive to excel in building up the church. Who gives the gifts? The Spirit of God. He's the focus. Why were they given? They were given for love. They were given for others. They were given for the good and the blessing of the person sitting next to you (laughs) and for the body as a whole. Let me finish with a list. Not going to talk about this much. If you were coming here thinking about we're going to discuss each of these individual gifts. I'm sorry, I'll leave that to Luke. Or someone else. It talks about the utterance of wisdom, utterance of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy, discernment of spirits, tongues, the interpretation of tongues. The interesting thing about the list is that it's not comprehensive. Later on, when he goes to the end of chapter 12, he includes the role of apostles and prophets, teachers, helping, administration. Um, In Romans uh, chapter 12 and then in Ephesians chapter 4, there are other gifts and roles that God talks about. Why is this list here? Why are these specific ones here? Well, I'm not completely sure, but I was listening to Timothy Keller talk about 1 Corinthians 13, and he asked the question, why are the particular characteristics of love that he has in 1 Corinthians 13? And I I thought it was very helpful. His suggestion was that the reason he was talking about those was that those were the ones that that the Corinthians were messing up (laughs) particularly. And it may have been that these are some of the things, uh, gifts that were creating a lot of the contention. I don't know. So how do we end? God wants us to be informed about gifts. He wants us to know why they're given, but he wants us especially to know who's giving them. And he wants us especially to know why they were given. In humility, we're there for the blessing and good of others. Romans 12 puts it this way, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. See, we're not sufficient in ourselves to think anything of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. And so, God has given you gifts, He's given each of us different gifts, not for division not to argue about, not to compete with, but he's given them so that we might glorify him and participate in his work of transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. He's given it for us for the good of this body, this church. You can mess that up. I can mess it up in a number of ways, but particularly I can mess it up by becoming proud of these things that God has enabled me with. Or I can mess it up by not exercising it. God's given me this capacity, and so rather than me exercising it in love for another I don't do anything, I please myself, I look inward, oh, that's a choice we can make, but it's a choice of loss and not of blessing. So we conclude, what do we learn from this passage? We learn that we are to focus on the giver, not on the gifts. We're to focus on the spirit of God who is the one who empowers us and who's given us all good things. On God himself who gave his only begotten son so that if we believe in him we should not perish but have everlasting life. we focus on the giver and we focus on others not on the gifts. Given for the common good, for the edification, if you like, technical word, for the building up of the body. For you to be a blessing and a joy to other people and experience the joy of God in doing that. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have persevered with us. You're described as someone who is long-suffering. And Lord, even as you walk amongst the churches and amongst this church, would you be gracious to us and merciful to us and reveal yourself as the great giver. And may we fall in love with you. And so... In doing so, fulfill your purpose for us and for the good of your body, the church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.